Well, the Advent season is here, and the anticipation of Christmas is upon us. That word, anticipation, and the associated feeling is something that I think a lot about every year at this time. Because there's something important about the wait and the building that happens while you wait. Now, if you're anticipating something that turns out to be not that significant, then your anticipation will actually lead you to a letdown because you've built it up in your mind, but the thing itself just doesn't deliver. But anticipation is a powerful emotion if you are anticipating something that's truly important. Every year, we come to the Christmas season and the anticipation begins and it builds and it builds and it builds all the way to Christmas Day, that day when we celebrate the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ with our church family and with our families. And if you focus on the core of Christmas and not the material things around it, then our anticipation can be very powerful. But as I was thinking about anticipation the other day, it strikes me that our anticipation for Christmas is very much related to our perspective and sometimes to our circumstances. For example, the perspective of the Christian in Israel or Palestine is different this year than the one in America as both anticipate Christmas. The perspective of the Christian who lives in Ukraine, uh, coming up on nearly two years of war, is not the same as the one who lives in Germany as they wait for Christmas this year. The person who lost a loved one this past year is different than the one whose family is whole in their perspective and anticipation for Christmas. And the perspective of a child is different than an adult as they anticipate Christmas this year. And the perspective from heaven is different than the perspective from earth as it relates to Christmas this year and every year. This year for the Advent season, we will be having a four-week series in the book of Psalms that anticipate the coming of King Jesus. Four different Psalms, four very different tones attached to them, four different aspects of his character and attributes that serve to build anticipation toward the meaningful celebration of Christmas. And this morning, I want to ask you to turn in your Bible with me and as we start in Psalm chapter 2. The second Psalm is a psalm that has a very serious tone, as you'll find in just a minute. And we see in this psalm that the perspective of heaven is very different than the perspective of earth. Like all psalms, this psalm is divided into stanzas, and the psalmist has four different stanzas. And it's interesting how they're arranged. You'll see in the screen behind me, 
The first stanza is from the perspective of earth and what's happening here. The second and third stanzas are what is coming from heaven. And the fourth stanza brings us back to what it all means for us on earth. The perspective of heaven is different than the perspective of earth. The perspective of God is different than the perspective of man, even as it relates to Christmas. And this psalm, like so many others, has a dual field of view. Not just the different perspectives, but there is a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. The near fulfillment for the people of Israel, as this psalm is being written, is that God will establish his king, King David, on the throne. A king after his very own heart. A king who will be empowered by himself. A king who will stand against the nations and solidify his people who scoff at, who are scoffed at and sought to be destroyed by those nations. But beyond that, there is a distant fulfillment in mind. We see the anticipation not just of a temporary king, but an eternal king. We see an anticipation of one who will rule, not just over a region, but will who rule over the entire world world, God's very own son, King Jesus. And so this is a psalm of anticipation, Christmas anticipation. It doesn't have the festive, jolly anticipation sound tone that you might feel, but this is Christmas anticipation from heaven. And so follow with me as we read it together. This is what the psalmist writes. He says, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. We see in the first stanza a perspective of what's happening on the earth that might be summarized in the very first phrase, the nation's rage. The tone is one of gravity it's meant for you and me to feel the seriousness of the accusation. No soft words will do when people rage against 
the holy God of the universe. The nation's rage, the people's plot, and the kings set themselves against the Lord. This is the story of all of humanity's rebellion against God as their king and against his anointed. It's not a new story. It's a story that is shown again and again and again through human history. History is replete with example after example. In the biblical times, we see that the Egyptians worshiped their Pharaoh as their king and their deity. The Babylonians sacrificed their children to their god, Molech, and they lived lives shameful to the followers of Yahweh. The Canaanites had many gods represented by the Baals, and the Assyrians worshiped Asher and Nisroch, among others. And in all of these nations, and many, many more, they crafted for themselves deities to worship, some of them in their own image, others that would allow them to fulfill their physical desires, and all of them representing a raging against God himself. The same is true today. False gods, false worship. Some informal religious expression. Much of it today in informal priorities and a functional worship of material things or a worship of sex, or a worship of fame, or maybe even a worship of our own children. Much of it designed to meet our desires, whether good or bad, with little regard for the higher authority of God and the nation's rage. And look at what it says in verses two and three. It says, they counsel together and against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Bonds and cords literally refer to the leather straps that would hold the yoke on oxen. They were used to shackle prisoners of war, even kings as their kingdoms were Conquered The kings of the earth in this instance are not actually tied in chains or bound with leather, leather straps, but they feel like they are. It feels like the Lord and his people have kept them in bondage. There's something to consider there because that's probably the same way that many of us felt before we knew the Lord, before God saved us, We felt like the rules that God imposed on society were there to keep us from doing what we wanted to do, that God is some kind of cosmic killjoy, that he's trying to hold you back from who you want to become or what you want to do or the fun that you want to have. It might have felt like he was trying to bind you with straps or chains. Some of you might still feel this way. We want what we want, what we want. And nobody, not even God, has the right to tell me otherwise. Because we want to be the king of our own existence. And we don't get our way 
we might feel like we are the ones who are chained or imprisoned or held back and that God himself is the one who is doing it. And so in response, we try to find ways to cut the cords, to break free of the bonds, and we create a whole variety of categories to try to do so. In his book, Wisdom Pyramid, Brett McCracken illustrates this well when he says, in 2018, Oprah Winfrey gave an acceptance speech at the Golden Globes, and she said, what I know for sure is that speaking your truth is the most powerful tool that we have. Your truth. Those two words, he writes, are so entrenched in our culture, in our lexicon today, that we hardly recognize them for the incoherent nightmare that they are. Among other things, your philosophy, the philosophy of your truth, destroys families when a dad suddenly decides that his truth is calling him to a new lover, a new family, or maybe even a new gender. It's a philosophy that can destroy entire societies because invariably one person's truth will go to battle with another person's truth and devoid of any reason, only power decides the victor. Your truth also puts incredible self-justifying burden on the individual because if we're all self-made projects whose destinies are wholly ours to discover and implement, then life simply becomes this rat race of performative individuality. Live your truth. That type of autonomy is exhausting. It's incoherent. Depression is inevitable as a result of this inexorable counterpart of the human being who is his or her, his or her own sovereign. But here's the thing. There is a God who has one truth. And the rebellion of the kings, the rebellion of ourselves to want to be the king of our very own lives, to break the bonds of his truth, to live our own life, our own way, according to whatever we perceive our truth to be. On earth, the story of human history is kings rebelling against the king. And it is this reality that serves as a catalyst for Christmas anticipation because it poses a question. What is God going to do? How long will God allow that type of rebellion to last? When will he set things right again? And the perspective of heaven is different than the perspective of earth. And the perspective of God is different than the perspective of man. And so look at the second stanza in verse four. It says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision and then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. 
God's response to the rebellion of people is not the response that you might expect. From heaven, God laughs. It points to the futility of their rebellion. No matter how hard those people are opposed to God, no matter how hard they try to rule, it will amount to nothing. Rebellion and our sin will always bring harm to ourselves and to the world around us. And the fact that we try so intensely to con- and only continue to fail only further clarifies the futility. The nations lined up against God's people, Israel, in the Old Testament. And God merely used them as pawns to accomplish his purposes. They thought they were conquering God's people again and again. And God would use them and move them and manipulate them all for the sake of his own purpose, sometimes to bless his people Israel, other times to discipline them, always to make known his holiness and his power and his might. They had one plan, but God had another. This morning we read from Isaiah chapter 40 as the Advent candle was lit. And later in that chapter, the prophet puts this very reality in perspective when he writes, Behold, the nations are like a drop from the bucket, and they are counted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. All of the nations are as nothing before him, and they are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. God laughs at their illusion of control. He holds them in derision. Today, the same holds true. Millions of dollars are spent year over year to stand against godly principles in the political realm in the West, and God laughs. Government agencies hunt down Christians in China to imprison or even execute them under the illusion of control. Thousands of lives are expended in the world economy as compromised under the guise of an expanding Russian kingdom throughout the Ukraine or war in Israel and Palestine. And what does it all result in? Nations rise and nations fall. Leaders are born, leaders die. Money comes, money goes. Political structures are built and then those same structures collapse. But the word of the Lord remains forever. God holds them who oppose him in derision. He scoffs at them with scorn and contempt and their efforts are wasted. And it says in verse 5 and 6 that he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. 
Now you would expect when God speaks in wrath, it would be a thundering, booming voice from heaven that proclaims judgment upon them immediately. And yet this word of wrath is anything but that, at least in the immediate function. His word of wrath, he says, as for me, I will set my king on Zion, my holy hill. That's the word of wrath that God gives. It's not the expression of wrath you'd assume. However, when this king comes, King Jesus, he comes in power and in glory. He comes in salvation and he comes in judgment. God's king will rule and God's king will judge. So here, the tone is heavy. The picture is dark, but there's a glimmer of light that's shining in the darkness. There's a piercing light that's coming through it all. And the good news starts to unfold because are you discouraged? Are you disheartened, wondering, as you look at the world around you, will there ever be peace? God promises that his king will come. Are you mocked because of your devotion to this king, Jesus? God promises judgment day will come. Do you sometimes feel like there's no hope? Well, God's king will reign from his holy hill and he will cast down all of those who oppose him. True and pure justice will be administered and therefore you can have hope. Heaven's perspective is not earth's perspective and God's timing is not your timing. The light shines in the darkness. And so... When you look to the third stanza, you see another perspective coming from heaven, something from heaven to earth. God makes a decree. For Israel, this decree is of a coming king, an anointed king, David. For all of humanity, this decree is of an eternal king, his anointed king, Jesus. And this is what he says. He says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in the pieces like a potter's vessel. From heaven, a decree comes to earth. A decree would be a written document that outlines the wishes of God for the very king who is anointed on his inauguration day. God would recognize David as his king. He would be as a son to God, to rule his people and to be empowered by his great name. Likewise, the one that would come from David's line, long foretold, the Lord Jesus would be inaugurated as the king, but not just the king of Israel. And not just a king for a time. He would be the king of the entire world forever. And so you see that Psalm 2 is quoted in the New Testament 
quite a bit, but here's just two examples that speak to the high standing of the Lord Jesus and that speak to his power and rule and judgment. With regard to his high standing, Hebrews chapter one is talking about how Jesus is unique among all other spiritual entities. And the writer of Hebrews says, for which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son and today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me as a son. Quoting Psalm 2, 7. Or speaking of his power, quoting Psalm 2, 9. Revelation 19, 15 says, For from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. And so you see in this psalm as well that with regard to the coming of the Lord Jesus, his divine attributes and miraculous nature is evident for us to see. Verse 7, we see that his miraculous birth is foretold when the Father says, today I have begotten you. His universal rule over the world is told as a king when the Father says, the nations shall be your heritage. Not one, but all of them shall be yours. And with regard to his judgment that's foretold, when the father says, you shall break the nations with the rod of iron and dash them in the potter's vessel. Why? Why would we again and again and again make the point? Why would we belabor it? Because you're getting closer to the idea that if you think God is small, you're wrong. (laughs) If you think that God doesn't know what is going on right here and right here in your own very life, you're sorely mistaken. If you're looking around at what's happening in the world around you and you have this incredible discomfort because it just feels like things are all going the wrong way, think again. Because even though the kings of the earth might war against God, His anointed king will be universally victorious. The kings of the earth will war against him. You might try to war against him. But his anointed king will be universally victorious. And that is the perspective from heaven coming down to earth. The psalmist finishes in the fourth stanza with a warning and a blessing. Look at it. If the nations rage and rebel against God, but if God stands above them all and their attempts to rule are futile, and if God establishes his own king of the world, King Jesus, and if this king will both rule and judge, then what are we supposed to do? It says that we are blessed if we take refuge in him. Look at it. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. 
Be wise and be warned. Take refuge in King Jesus and you will be blessed. That puts a different perspective on anticipation toward Christmas. The perspective of heaven is different than the perspective from earth. And God's chosen king, Jesus, comes from heaven to earth. And the psalmist reminds us that this serves as a warning and an opportunity. Be wise and be warned, he said. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. He's that severe of a king. Kiss the son because he is the true king. And the tone is serious and it's strong because the reign of the king is serious and strong. You don't want a weak king. And you certainly don't want a weak king who is going to rule forever. You don't want a king that will ignore or tolerate insurrection and rebellion. The warning is the warning of judgment that this king will come, but the hope is the hope of opportunity that you can and have the ability to take refuge in him. And if you do, then you will be blessed. And so we bend the knee and we bow before the king. He is the king and he's so gracious and merciful. Kings of the world come to take from the people around them and this king comes to give. The kings of the world come to enrich themselves and this king comes to enrich his followers. He does so through grace and mercy for all of those who would follow his reign. He forgives sins of people who recognize their need for him. He helps the ones who follow him. He's the king that extends loving kindness to the members of his kingdom. And for one to bend the knee and kiss the son of another was the sign of ultimate respect and submission. It was the sign of greatness. and was recognized that the one giving the kiss was humbly yielding to the one with the greater power. The invitation for Christmas, the anticipation that builds is that God sets things right through an eternal king and you have the opportunity to take refuge, to take shelter, to take security in him. Do you trust him in that way? Do you trust that his reign is greater than your reign could ever be? Do you entrust your entire life? Do you entrust your entire future to him? That's what it means to take refuge in him. And the invitation is ever before you. He is worthy of it. The kings of the earth may war against God but his anointed king will be universally victorious. And he can be universally victorious and you can receive the benefit of that victory. This morning I want to close with thinking together just very briefly about what we're anticipating at Christmas. Our anticipation is served in our singing Some of your anticipation was served on the radio starting in like mid-October. 
So maybe you're like losing the luster already. But other than defrosting Mariah Carey or Last Christmas or all those songs that you hear again and again and again, the Christmas hymns that we sing as Christians are awash with proclamation of a couple reoccurring themes and one of them is the kingship of Jesus. You sing it in the vast majority of Christmas songs that you sing, whether you know it or not. Here's just one example. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And heaven, the perspective of heaven, and nature, the perspective of earth, let them sing. No more let sins or sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. The kings of the earth may war against God, but his anointed king will be universally victorious and he can be your king as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that a serious problem is met with a serious solution. We thank you that you do not soft pedal the nature of rebellion, nor do you shy away from the nature of judgment, but in the midst of insurrection, you provide a holy king on the hill of Zion for all eternity, our Lord Jesus. God, I thank you we can take refuge in him and I pray for my friends, my brothers and sisters, that indeed we would do just that. Be wise and be warned. Blessed are those who take refuge in the king. And it's in his mighty name that we pray. Amen.